Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I am Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. There's a lot of stuff happening. We're going to start opening the seals and looking at things. If you're just now joining us for the first time, please know that we covered other chapters previous to chapter 5 in the book of Revelation. So I would suggest highly that you go back and listen to those before getting into the fifth. And I remember, Bryce, the first time reading this book. It's different reading it versus, okay, now you have to go teach it. I remember I was a first-year teacher, and I was called by my boss, and he said, we want you to give an hour presentation in front of all your peers on the book of Revelation. And I was literally like a deer in the headlights. I remember reading this going, okay, what do I even emphasize? I can really feel for the teachers out there that are teaching this, especially with the limited time that we have. And so I think what Bryce and I are trying to do is to go a little bit more detailed so that you can have the background here. So Bryce, chapter 5 He sees in the right hand of the person on the throne, I'm going to say that's the Father, he has this book. So chapter 4, we saw into Heavenly Father's abode, into his kingdom, and we saw his glory and his love and how much he wants to save his children. And now John notices the book in his right hand. Now Joseph asked the question, I'm This is Doctrine and Covenant section 77, which we turn to quite a bit, and thank goodness for modern revelation, which fills in the plain and precious things that have been lost. Um, Section 77, verse 6, what are we to understand by the book? So we began with the end. We began in heaven, and we saw the glory of those who were saved. But how did they get there? What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? Answer, we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, the mysteries, the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. In other words, Heavenly Father has a book that contains all the things that he did to get us into his presence. The mysteries, the works, the hidden things. All of the answers to everything that happened, Heavenly Father's purposes for our lives, for every aspect of his creation. I imagine there's a chapter in that book for each one of us, and that chapter is the story of my life and why the things that happened to me happened. What were the hidden things in God's economy for my life? Why did my brother die when I was 16? Why was that something essential for the Dunford family? Why this time period? Why those parents? Why this family? Why those talents? Why these trials? Why did that happen to me? Well, all of those are the mysteries, the works of God, the hidden things of his economy in trying to save me. Before we move on, we just need to pause and understand that that book is written on the front and on the back, which means the story's written. Heavenly Father has a purpose. Now, I don't mean to suggest that he's dictating what happens to us as much as he has a plan for me. I have agency and I can choose to push against him. I don't mean to suggest that we're destined. But Heavenly Father is certainly a heavy participant in my salvation, in the things that happen to me. And so why that trial? Why is my life right for me and Mike's life is right for Mike and your life is right for you? Well, the answer is in that book. 
Every one of us have answers. Every one of us have a chapter in that book. Heavenly Father has a plan for each one of us. Years ago, Elder Marvin J. Ashton gave a wonderful talk, and in it he talked about a father who was traveling by train and holding his blind daughter on his lap. After a while, a friend sitting next to the father said, let me give you a little bit of rest, and he took the daughter. And then a while after that, the father realized, oh my goodness, she doesn't even know who's holding her. So he turned to his blind daughter and says, do you know who's holding you? And the daughter replied, no, but you do. And Elder Ashton said, wouldn't it be comforting if when the trial happens in our life or challenges and bad things and painful things and things we don't understand happen in our lives and the whispering of the Spirit comes and says, do you know why this has happened to you? We could have the peace of mind to say no, but you do. And we will see a kind, loving God who desires our salvation above anything else on earth. And he's written a plan. I love how you take Jacob 5 and you say, hey, this is, let's personalize this. Yeah. Can you do, are you okay? To, let's do that. Let's, let's do take that. Jacob chapter 5. There's two re- ways to read Jacob 5, and that is a history of the house of Israel. But we can also read it as my history, my personal history, what God does in my life. Now, the problem is if you'll look at verse 4, verse 6, the tree is decaying. If you let trees grow the way they want to grow, they usually don't end up the way that we want them to grow. Which is, I kind of think, the whole message of the book of Revelation is God says, I'm giving you, mankind, this wonderful earth, and what have we done? We just messed everything up. Look what you've done with this earth. It's just a mess. And so, verse 3, the tree begins to decay, And so the Lord steps in and he does some minor things like prune it and dig about it and nourish it. And it works a little bit, verse 6, but the problem is the tree's going to fall. The tree's going to fall apart. And there are so many times in Jacob 5 where the Lord says, I'm not going to lose this tree. So Jacob 5 is the story of a loving caretaker who is determined not to lose a tree. And that's the book. That's your chapter. I'm not going to lose you. I'm going to do everything in my power to save you. And so notice he does three things to save us. Verse 7, he plucks. The act of plucking is taking something in our life and pulling it out. Someone, an opportunity. And he plucks because he loves us and he wants to save the tree. He plucks us. And that is oh so painful but he knows what he's doing. And his whole goal is to save the tree and bring forth fruit. Because if you let trees go the way they want to go, quite often they don't. And they end up lost. And so he plucks, he yanks things out of our lives. In verse 9, he grafts, which is taking something that I never thought I'd have to deal with, something foreign, something outside of my experience, putting it into my life, like, just like cancer. Li- like literally so intimate. We're grafting We're it into grafting you. We're grafting it like into you. Like I like how you said cancer, like it's in you. And then in verse 13, he places us. Sometimes he places us in the nithermost part of the vineyard. And sometimes our lives are going great, and all of a sudden he places us in a situation we never thought we'd be in, a place we never thought we'd be in. And all of this is to save the tree. Count how many times he says, it grieveth me to lose this tree. And the funny thing is, it works. Dad Gummit, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> I it like verse works. 22 where he's like, counsel me not. Don't tell me what, let counsel me do my job. Counsel me not, yeah. I knew. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. 
because it works. As soon as he grafts and he plucks and he places, it works. It brings forth fruit. And our tendency the whole time along is to murmur, complain, bellyache. We're doing it today. We did it in Exodus. They did it to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, show us a sign. He's like, I just gave you bread. What do you guys want from me? And so the whole idea here is I'm not going to lose this tree. And then in the parable, there comes a point where all the fruit goes bad. And he asks a piercing question in verse 41, what could I have done more for my vineyard? And he answers that question in verse 47, and the answer is nothing. Have I slackened my hand? Have I not nourished it? No, I have nourished it. I've dunged it. I've pruned it. I've, d- I've done everything. Now, that's a deep doctrine. Your life is your best chance at salvation. God knows you well enough to know exactly the best way to save you. Every trial you have had. Because the answer is, is there more I could have done? Could I have done something that would have been better? No. Because the implication here is he would have done it. If someone, uh, if some other trial or someone else's life would have been better for you, then this God, this loving God who isn't going to lose the tree, would have done that. Your story is your best chance at salvation. Every person, everything, every part of that book, the hidden things, the things he's not telling you, are your best chance at salvation. And we need to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. And maybe one more thought about that. The book is sealed. And the only person who can open it is Jesus. You cannot open the book. The answers to your questions will come to you when the Savior wants to open the book, not when you want the answers. And we have to trust his timing when he opens that book and lets us have the answers. Some people get answers in this life. Some people don't get answers until the next life. Counsel me not. I remember the first time you and I years ago talked about this chapter and you personalize it. And I've always taught it as this is the story of Israel. But if I read Jacob 5 and I read about my story, it changes so many ways the way I look at how I was raised, my circumstances. Um, I have a friend who has had horrible things happen to him. And yet he's strong for it spiritually. I just think that this is so, it's just so beautiful, Jacob 5. And so if that's all you take out of Revelation 5, I think that's, I think that's, the, that's the money shot right there. You've won. You get what's going on in Revelation 5. This whole story of all these seals, and by the way, seals, they're not like the things in the ocean, right, that eat fish. A seal would be the, if I had a scroll and I was delivering it to Bryce through a messenger, I would put wax a hot wax on the scroll as it was rolled up. And with my signet, my ring, I would put an imprint on there. And so you can see like just a little imprint that says, Mike Day hates the Lakers. That'd be my seal if I had if I had one anciently. If I lived in Rome, I would still hate the Lakers. And so I would send that to Bryce and then he would know nobody's messed with this book. And so each one of these seals is going to represent a time period. But the overarching message is God has said, I've given you guys this earth and it's a mess. And I'm going to send my son to fix it up. So from here on out, the story we're opening is the earth's story. God has a plan for the earth. Look what's happened. Look what you guys have done to my earth. And now I'm going to send my son and we're going to fix it. We're going to clean it up and we're going to turn it into a sea of glass. And that's the story we're now going to tell. So John notices that the book is sealed. He weeps because no one can open it. 
And then someone says, no, someone can open it. And it's the Savior, Jesus, the Lamb of God. He hath prevailed to open the book. And so now he's going to take the book and open the portion of the book that is this earth story. What's happened on it, what's currently happening on it, what's going to happen shortly as it becomes a sea of glass. Yeah. So verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book with uh, written within and with on the backside, sealed with seven seals. I want to talk just a little bit about the right hand. The right hand in first century uh, Roman world, it represented faithfulness. The Latin is fides, or uh, in Greek is pistis, which is faithfulness or loyalty or trustworthiness. Uh, the right hand represented reciprocity. In two hands that were in a hand clasp represented a complete fidelity in the ancient world. The Roman historian Tacitus, he used the phrase to renew right hands meant to renew a covenant or a treaty. And Romans could send right hands clasped in effigy uh, to each other before entering into a contract, signifying an alliance relationship. And so this is this notion of pistis or fetus, this idea of faithfulness was even in Roman coins. We might even put some of this on the show notes. A lot of this is revealed in a book called Relational Faith, written by Brent Schmidt. He's a classic scholar, teaches at BYU-Idaho. And his whole point of his book is to show readers that in the first century in Jesus's world, the word for faith re- represented a reciprocity and the symbol was the right hand even the right hand clasp, as it were. And it represented an alliance. It represented this is somebody that you can trust. And so if you raised your right hand, we do this in church all the time. What we're doing is we're pledging allegiance. We're saying, I signify that I will be loyal to this decision. I will support this. And so when this book is in the right hand of the person on the throne, just that phrase, and and the phrase comes up over and over again in the book of Revelation, but it's also in the New Testament— it's this idea that we can, this is somebody that we can trust. It's even on the temple, isn't it, Bryce? Yeah, those of you going down to Temple Square, go to the east side of the temple and look up above one of the windows. You'll see two right hands clasped together. And notice that they are right hands. So two right hands clasped has made its way on the walls of the temple as a symbol of what we do in that building. Yeah. Verse 3 of chapter 5, no man in heaven was worthy. And then in verse 4 of chapter 5, John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book. I don't know all the, you know, all the different ways you can interpret verse 4. I think one way to look at this is what Bryce has talked about, is how when we see the book of our life, the book of the earth, and we see how God looks at it, uh, we could weep. Certainly, I remember really learning about the history of some of the nations of the earth, and it caused me great consternation. There's the passage in Moses where God weeps, and Enoch says, God, how can you weep? You're holy. Almost as if you're removed. Your holiness has removed you from this mess of mortality. And the God of heaven weeps in the book of Enoch is contained in Moses. In other words, God is personally involved. So I think the weeping can go both ways. It can certainly be read many ways. But I really like that verse. It's, it's very touching to me. While you're on that subject, let me read that verse. I'm in Moses 7, verse 48. It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth. So we're going to focus on the earth as an entity. It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof, saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. 
I am pained. I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face. So the earth is weeping, saying, when are you going to finish my story? Tell me how my story ends, because the earth's history has been one of violence and death and disease and heartbreak and pain. And the earth is crying out, saying, when will I get to rest? When are you going to cleanse me and purify me so that righteousness dwells on me? So that's part of that weeping. And especially as we're, you know, because now we're going to tell the earth's story. We're going to answer that question. We'll tell you when the earth gets to rest because you're going to become a sea of glass. Yeah. Revelation 5.5. 5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. And that's really what Bryce is talking about. It's Jesus that's going to fix it. Clearly, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I want to talk a little bit about the word root, the root of David. And this is coming from Isaiah 11. And there are so many ways to interpret Isaiah 11. And so I want to just give you a way that is a little bit different, but I think it's significant. And so the word root is reza. And it literally means like a shoot. Uh, imagine and look in your mind's eye because Bryce talks about this all the time. You got to look at it. You got to see the book of Revelation. So this reza, this this shoot that comes out of something. And like I said, this is multi-level. But if you look in chapter 11 of Isaiah, and I believe this is what John is referring to, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The verse in chapter 11 is kind of clunky in English, in my opinion, so I'm going to do some translating here. Um, there shall come forth a rod. That's going to be a, uh, a sprout or a shoot, a coter, like a, like a new plant. And it's growing out of the stem or a stump. So imagine a stump that's been, you know, the tree's been cut down and there's a new tree coming out of the tree. Now, the typical interpretation in, from the Latter-day Saint perspective is in section 113, which we'll do that when we do Doctrine and Covenants. But in this context, I believe John is referring to this twig or this new tree coming out of the tree as being Christ. In other words, Christ was cut down. He's the stem of Jesse, but he's also the new tree. This is one way to look at it. And so if you go back to chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus was killed but he's also this new tree and there's newness in him. Now, later when we get to section 113, we'll look at this as representing a servant in the hands of Jesse and he's partly from Ephraim and partly from Judah and we'll do all that. But I really like this idea that he's a lion, but he's a new tree. So this is once again, tree of life symbolism and we're being invited to come into his presence. He's gonna be called in verse six, the lamb that was slain. And then the imagery, look at chapter five, verse six, there's this lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes, which is, I mean, if you're looking at that, that's a strange looking animal. Bryce, what would you do with that? Okay. Well, I love this because if you look at the footnote, Joseph changes it, having 12 horns. Yes. Okay. So hold on. I want you to picture the head of a little lamb. Okay. If you were to put one horn on an animal, where would you put it? Right there in the, you know, like a unicorn, right? Like a unicorn, right? yeah, narwhal. Two horns, where would you put two horns? Well, that's where cows have their horns. That's where we, where would you put 12 horns? We're talking dinosaurs, stegosaurus maybe, I don't know. Would you do four rows of three? <laughs> no, you do them in a circle, right? You'd put 12 horns in a circle. So Jesus has a circle of horns 
on his head, kind of like a crown. Do you see it? Now, why 12? 12 points to Israel. We are his crown. We are the reason he atoned. We are the hope that got him through the darkness of the atonement. We are the crown that he wears. And I love that, just a little lamb having 12 horns, because if you see it, we are his crown. Beautiful symbolism. I like that. So they fall down, the 12 elders. I like what they say in verse 10, that they've been made kings and priests unto the Most High God. That's harkening back to Exodus 19, make us kings and queens, priests and priestesses to reign on the earth. I like verse 11 can't even count them. Myriads upon myriads. This is quoting first Enoch literature, this idea that God is bringing his armies. God's a successful God. The earth story is filled with violence and blood, and the wicked people on the earth did to Jesus everything that the earth has done. Not the earth. I'm talking about the wickedness. They did to Jesus everything that's been done, and yet he survived, and now he's going to correct it. You know, after destroying him, he is the little twig that they could not destroy, and he's now going to grow up and become the lion that cleanses the earth. You, you begin to see the major character here. The people on the earth tried to destroy him and couldn't. Now he's going to cleanse the earth. Yeah. And now we're going to start opening up that book. We're going to open up the seals, and we're going to tell the earth's story. Now, most of it's going to be really quick, and in the past— so that we can get to the end, because the earth is crying out saying, when are you going to cleanse me? And Jesus is answering that question. I'm going to fix everything that was broken on this earth. I'm going to cleanse the earth. So now we're going to begin to break those seals and open them up one at a time. Okay, so chapter six, each each of the first four seals is just a couple of verses. I'm going to go kind of quick through it. The first couple of verses of chapter six, there's a white horse with an individual with a crown. He's conquering and big picture. If you're doing time periods, if you want to throw this up on a timeline, you know, 4,000 to 3,000 BC, Enoch, we're talking about his people. That's one way to read the text. The red horse, Peros, is blood red. Uh, 3,000 to 2,000, Noah's period. Uh, He's the dispensation head. The whole earth is filled with violence. We read this in the Enoch literature. It's in the book of Moses. It's in Genesis with the sons of God and the sons of men and some of the mixing there with the giants, which we've talked about before. The black horse in verse 5, this is a time of the patriarchs. But notice the issue happening in verse 6. A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. That's famine language. That's very expensive food. Yeah, that's a denarius. So if you worked all day, uh, you could get three measures of barley or a measure of wheat. So imagine you're a brick mason and you work all day and you get a loaf of bread or a couple loaves of bread. I mean, we're talking famine. And what's interesting in the book of Genesis, throughout the narratives of the patriarchs, there's all these stories of famine. This is symbolic. This is highly right brain material. In other words... How literal is this? I think this is one of those things where you kind of have to relax your Western mind and read this as an Eastern text. And then finally, the fourth horse in verse 8, chapter 6, chloros is translated as pale, but chlorine gas is this green color. It's this sickly color. So what's Israel? Israel's sick. This is the period of the apostasy after the king's revolt, you know, after Solomon's demise and the nation of Israel and, and Judah split and 
you know, 920-ish, 950-ish, and then uh, the destruction of the Northern Kingdom in the 720-ish time period, and then the destruction of the first temple. This is the loss of, of all things. And so from the Old Testament standpoint, this is the sadness of the end of the first temple. I think this is either Psalm 137 or 138, where the daughters of Zion weep along the river in Babylon, and they say, how could this happen to us? And then we get to the fifth seal in chapter 6, verse 9, and John sees under the altar the souls of those that were slain. And how long, Lord, are you going to not avenge our blood? And I love verse 11. White robes were given unto every one of them. These are people in Jesus' day. These are people in John's day that were martyred. It was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. To me, one of the big martyrs of this dispensation is going to be John, John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist, as a resurrected being, comes to earth and brings the priesthood back, he lays his hand on Joseph and Oliver's head. And what does he call him? My fellow servants. And so this is Mike Damon Rash. I read verse 11 and I just see these people of this dispensation had eyes towards our day. And they're resting until their fellow servants can put the work together. And now there, I, I really believe this, that on the other side of the veil, there's a lot of work happening and that these people are involved and that they're mindful of us. Anyway, so that's big picture. First five seals. This is, you know, John looking back in time, Bryce, I went kind of quick. Anything you want to add on that? But you can see the story that Jesus is telling. Look at what has happened on the earth. He's telling the earth story. The earth has been filled with conquest, nation conquering other. It's been filled with war. It's been filled with famine. And a famine is not so much a godly act as a carelessness of human beings. You know, we can prevent a lot of famine by taking better care of ourselves, better care of the earth, better care of our resources. You know, we can be prepared. We don't have to die in famine. And so he's just simply, look at what you've done. Conquest, war, famine, sickness, this is what has prevailed on earth. Do you see why we need to cleanse it? Do you see why we need to change it? This is the history of the earth. And even today, we see all four elements of those. We see conquest, we see war, we see famine, we see sickness. And so the Lord's saying, look at the history of the earth. And then when I have had good people on the earth, look what you do to them. Yeah, you kill them. You know, when I have had righteous people who would make a difference and bring about, you know, blessings and and help the earth survive, look what you do to them. You destroy them. You kill them. So that's why, as I open up the sixth seal, things are going to change. And so, very quick, previous 5,000 years history of the earth to say, blood, sickness, conquest, war, so now we're going to begin to change it. So now he's going to open up the sixth seal as we begin the cleansing process. We are going to begin to change things. And first, there's going to be a shaking. We're going to shake. So when he opens up the sixth seal in verse 12, there's a great earthquake. Now, literal and figurative. Don't see it as just literal. Are earthquakes involved in the sixth seal? Yes. Are earthquakes involved? Is there going to be even a big earthquake? Sure, probably. But again, don't be afraid. We're going to be prepared. We're going to see that. We have prophets, seers, and revelators who will prepare us. Remember Joseph of Egypt. There was a famine that they were prepared for. Yes, there's going to be an earthquake. But the other thing is, as you read the rest of chapter 6, there seems to be a shaking. 
it talks about a shaking, but this is not necessarily a literal shaking of the earth as much as it's symbolic. Now, notice in verse 13, he talks about untimely figs. Now, if you follow that symbolism in the footnote, it's the fruit that withered on the tree, that wasn't picked, it withers on the tree. Now, how do you get rid of all those apples that weren't picked and they're hanging on the tree and they've gone bad and they're all withered up? You shake it, right? You shake the limb. So what the Lord is doing is he's shaking the earth in the latter days to see what falls, to get rid of the untimely figs. And then the question at the very end of chapter six is, who's going to be left standing? But we are in a shaking period. Basically, this whole sixth seal has been a shaking. I think this is one of the things that lends uh, the book of Revelation to perpetual relevance. There's a book written by Jonathan Kirsch called The History of the End of the World, How the Most Controversial Book in the Bible Changed the Course of Western Civilization. And one of his points is that over time, we've interpreted the book of Revelation so many different ways. And I think that's one of the awesome things about the book is because it has perpetual relevance. What is this earthquake? And I think that we could look at it so many different ways. For example, if you and I lived during the time of the mid-5th century, we would say, well, clearly the book of Revelation has been fulfilled. Rome has fallen. The whore of all the earth has collapsed. The end of the world is imminent. And yet it didn't happen. But did the earth shake? And then, of course, you get into some of the dark times of empires rising and falling for centuries. I remember learning about 1588 with the competition between Spain and England and how Spain ruled the world. And historians have written, had 1588, August of 1588 never happened, perhaps America would have been a Catholic colony. But what happened? Queen Elizabeth and Sir Francis Drake, they literally changed the world. There was an earthquake and a a shift of empire. and, And the rest is history, as it were. England became the big empire. That's another thing that the book of Revelation is addressing is, well, who's really in charge? And in the background, it's the lamb who was slain. But we have over and over again these repetitions, these earthquakes that keep happening. I remember being a young man sitting in seminary, and I had a a seminary teacher who said, one day missionaries would be in Russia. And I laughed, and I said, we will never have missionaries in Russia. His name was Todd Hancock. I remember him to this day. And he said, I don't know how, but I know it will happen. And I looked at him and I said, Brother Hancock, I don't think so. And I was wrong. You live a while long enough and spend some time on this earth and you realize stuff happens. The earth shakes and the kingdom rolls forward. And so whether it's the destruction of communism or Rome or whatever great empire, whatever you think is the reality that will never change, I think this chapter is trying to say, well... Or false, false ideas. Sometimes it's yeah. not empires at all. It's false ideas. It's culture ideas. Yeah. You know, what's hip and what's happening. And, and this is a very hot topic right now. Well, we live in a day where the earth is shaking. I just love the image yes. of someone shaking the branches of a tree so that everything falls out that's not rooted and grounded and, yes. and secure to the tree. And, and communism fell out of the tree. And a lot of these false ideas are going to fall out of the tree. And so are you holding on to bad fruit? Are you holding on to something that's going to be shaken and fallen? Or will you be left standing at the end? Will you be part of the enduring tree? Or will you be the untimely fig? It's just a beautiful image. Don't hold on to things that are being shaken and are going to fall and dissolve and come to naught. Hold on to those things that are enduring, that are going to be there in the end. And that closing question in verse 17, who is going to be able to stand, is going to be addressed when we come back 
to Revelation 7. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. We're just trying to do what we can to spread light in an ever-darkening world. And so we hope you'll check out our new videos, and we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us, and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.